Hey, Jordan, what's up? Hello? Jordan, are you there? Hello? Uh, where is everyone? It's kind of weird. Strangely, strangely empty. Doesn't see Jordan. Doesn't see any of our, any of the interns. Not even Judy from HR is here. It's a little eerie, a little eerie here in the office at Insurgents Global HQ. You see a little piece of paper here. What is this? Oh, it's a, it's a note. Rob, gone to Langley for some minor training. Took interns and Judy with me. Needed assistance being provided beverages and other snacks. Please do the podcast without me this week. Your friend, Jordan. Oh, that's nice. Nice little note. Okay, well, that's a little bit of a surprise. But, uh, you know, I think I can handle a solo podcast episode. How hard can it be? I used to do it all the time. And you know what? Since Jordan's not here this week, this would actually be a fantastic opportunity to talk a little bit about Canada. I know everyone loves it when I talk about Canada. And, you know, we do have some listeners in Canada. I think at the last time I looked at our stats, we had about 10% of our audience were from Canada. And in all honesty, even to our American listeners right now, I actually think you should tune into this episode. Uh, we can talk a little bit about what's going on politically in Canada. I think if in case you still had any weird notions about what Canada is about after listening to me talk on this podcast for a couple of years, uh, I think that will be dispelled. I think no matter where you are living in America or the the West in general or wherever you are, I think it's really important to get a, a firm grasp on uh, what is going on politically with your neighbors as well. And you know what? Even though you're American, I think you're allowed. You're allowed to listen to it and you're allowed to talk about it. That's what I say. I have a kind of a different attitude about this than some others do. But I think what we're going to do today, folks, is talk to uh, my friend Nora Loretto. Nora's uh, one of my favorite people to talk to about politics. Um, she lives in Quebec City. She hosts a politics podcast called Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. She's a columnist. She's written in the Washington Post and along a number of other journalistic uh, outlets, although she's been somewhat blacklisted here in Canada for being too epic, unfortunately, uh, because that's how our, our free media uh, operates here, our, our journalistic freedom. That's how it works here in Canada. Uh, so Nora's going to be joining the show in just a few minutes uh, for a really great conversation. I hope you tune in. I'd just also like to remind you that if you're not a subscriber of the Insurgents Podcast, if you're not one of our beloved paid interns, uh, please do subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast for $5 per month on Substack. Get access to all our great bonus content. We had a really great conversation uh, with just Jordan and I uh, earlier this week for the bonus episode. We talked about uh, Twitter's new rival threads, the new Facebook social media app. We talked about this whole idea about that was being promoted on MSNBC about how the far right is using fitness for recruitment. And, you know, obviously that's not true. I'm incredibly physically fit and I'm not far right. So that's obviously a myth that we were able to debunk. Uh, we talked a little bit about how there's been certain progressive media figures uh, engaging in some really ugly rhetoric uh, when it comes to uh, transgender issues and the way that they kind of approach this issue with this sort of just asking questions approach uh, and how it really only piles onto uh, the nonstop kind of transphobic uh, panic campaign that's being promoted in in right wing media. You know, you're you're sort of 
supposedly progressive, nuanced version of, of those kind of questions about trans women in sports or the kind of language that we use to talk about uh, gender is not really helping anything. It doesn't make you seem more nuanced. It's just giving oxygen to some really bad faith right-wing arguments. It was a really fantastic discussion. I encourage people to listen to it. So once again, that's $5 per month or $55 annually to subscribe to the Insurgents podcast and become one of our beloved paid interns. And that's all I really have to say for this introduction, folks. You know, I'm just by myself. But what else am I going to talk about? I don't know. How are you doing? Do you have anything going on? You can't even talk to me. Like, what, what am I doing here? This is useless. Let's just get to my conversation with Nora Loretto. Honestly, I think people are really going to enjoy this one. Uh, it was a great conversation with Nora. She's always a delight to talk to. And let's get to that, okay? I don't have any more gimmicks this week. I don't have any more AI co-hosts or any fun things to do. Let's just get to this conversation with Nora, okay? You're going to enjoy it, I promise. And Nora Loretto is going to be joining the program right after this. So now we are joined by uh, my friend and colleague, Nora Loretto. Nora is the host of the Sandy and Nora podcast, also a, a columnist for the Washington Post, among other important and influential news organizations, <laughs> right? Am I leaving anything out? Well, Washington Post has kind of stopped calling me. Um, okay. And it's it's one of those kind of like change of the guard, never really made the contact with the new guy. And frankly, I didn't like writing for a global audience because you have to back up and be like, oh, uh, you know, in Canada, the dollar is uh, a different dollar. You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you got you to really hold their hands through this. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I know. Well, that's I mean, it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today, Nora, because, you know, obviously this is a podcast where most of the time we're talking about American politics. Um, mm. But my co-host is away this week, so it's just me. So now it's a more an opportunity for me to make the show even more about Canada stuff. Um, nice. So it's I'm I'm seizing the seizing the moment here. But in all in all seriousness though, like like I, I do think it's important for people around the world, like in Canada, wherever else, to kind of understand what's going on in America and the United States government. You know, they're the global hegemon. And, you know, if you're living in Canada, it affects you. And if, what happens in the United States government affects the whole world. But also on the same level, I actually think it's pretty important to. Sorry, are you getting. I'm listening. I'm just also yelling at my children, but uh, no, okay. I'm totally listening to you. It's okay. called multitasking. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I know all about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but also I think like. It's also a little bit important, I think, for to talk a little bit about Canada sometimes to an American audience. Um, yeah, because I think it's important to like dispel any of these kind of myths that people have about Canada in their minds, um, and yeah. kind of just promote this idea that if you live in the West, we're all part of the same empire, right? Like yeah. Canada's maybe a junior partner in that, but we're all part of the sort of the same team and. We need to sort of understand each other in that way, and I think I think it's actually mm -hmm. helpful sometimes to talk a little bit about what's going on in Canada with our our American friends. Totally, totally. I mean, and it, not not just that, but like you know, all of our foreign policy is driven by the United States, and all yeah. of our all of our. I mean, where the the trade between the two countries is 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 you know more than half of our trade comes to the United States, and a lot of our stuff goes to the U.S. 
Um, and I think it's easy for us as Canadians to to look at this relationship and be like, you know, obviously we're the smaller partner in the relationship and we have no say and all of this kind of thing. But I mean, the support and the and the in the in the um, need that the United States has for Canada to do these things is actually just as strong. You know, it yeah. isn't it isn't just because we're a junior partner that that the United States sees uh, Canada's military acquiring new uh, planes, for example, as being in the military interest of the United States, which is the case right now for um, new um, new planes that the Canadian military is trying to trying to purchase from uh, from Boeing. And, uh, you know, so it's not it isn't it isn't like we're like completely separate countries like we're a lot we're operating in lockstep. And if uh, we look at what's going on in Ukraine and, you know, this idea that like Ukraine might be this Western power versus Russia and they're right on the border of each other or whatever. Like, gosh, could you imagine if Russia started like putting, you know, military along the border of Canada? Like it's impossible. It's, it's a literally impossible to think about um, because of the relationship that the two countries have. And I don't know if Americans appreciate that as much as we Canadians, I think, see it a lot more. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so that's why I think it's 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 going to be good to have this conversation with you today, Nora. Before we do any of that, though, uh, there is every time someone comes on this podcast, there is something important that we ask them right off the bat, just to kind of like and get, know who we're dealing with, so our audience knows like what's going on. It's a very serious thing, and that's why I have to ask you right now, Nora Loretto, are you a gamer? No, 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 not, not e- like I don't even know. I don't even know what games are. I don't know <laughs> gaming. Uh, okay. I, I, you know what? I, I downloaded an emulator when I was in university and spent all of my time seeing how fast I could be Mario one. Okay. That's where I'm at. All right. Well, I guess that counts. That's fine. <laughs> okay. You're in like real life sports. You're doing soccer and that kind of stuff, right? That's good. I'm a real life person. Yeah. I like, because I spend so much of my time online, I don't actually do any entertainment online. Like I don't have a TV. I don't watch TV. I like I talk about any pop culture. I have no idea of any of that stuff at all. Like I really have, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what movies people watch. I don't know the shows. <laughs> I don't know what Netflix is. Um, but yeah, I'm playing a lot of soccer and it's been brutal because of climate change. My soccer games have either been in like extreme heat or torrential downpours. Yeah. <laughs> so that, Did that you get sucks. crazy that crazy apocalyptic thunderstorm in Quebec City yesterday? We got it last night. Yeah, yeah. it canceled. So Quebec City has an annual summer festival. It usually brings about 120,000 people every single night downtown because there's four or five different stages. And the big event last night was a very Quebecois a group, uh, probably the biggest super group the entire like of, in, in all of Canada in terms of how many albums they've sold and how many how how they can show out uh, sell out a, a stadium uh, concerts. But no one has heard of them outside of Quebec, and it's Les Cowboys Fringants. And they uh, their show was canceled just as they were supposed to go on the stage. Oh, so no, it's pretty they got sad. Yeah, I got rained out, and then I got to watch that those those like hundreds of thousands of people streaming past where I live as they were fleeing uh, from what really did sound like apocalyptic thunder. Like, I mean, I've never heard thunder like that. Yeah, well, we had a tornado warning here, which I think that's a first for Montreal. Yikes! Yeah, yeah, and and did it? Uh, did you did you like did 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 you have crazy thunder and lightning as well? I assume so. Yeah, yeah, it was really crazy. Um, no tornado that I know of, though, but there was a lot of crazy thunder and lightning and really, really crazy rain. Like it was one of the biggest storms that I can recall hitting here. Very oh, strange. See, yeah. it's for us, it was the second storm this week that was as intense. 
but the thunder and lightning and the wind were different. And so people who don't understand where we are geographically located, like our cities are beside each other by about three hours. Yeah. The Quebec city is a further, it's a bit further North and to the East. And because of the ocean, it's not that far from us. It's like, we get both weather from Montreal, but then also um, some wackiness from the ocean. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things too, where like, obviously we know climate change is happening and that's having this huge uh, impact on our weather. Sometimes you wonder, look, in those situations, like, is this, was there stuff like this going on in the 50s and 60s and 70s? Like, I'm sure there was big storms as well. But because we know that this process is happening, it's so hard not to wonder how much that is impacting this, like, weird kind of weather patterns we're going over. I mean, we are getting record heat, not just in Quebec, but around the world globally. Like, we're sitting record temperatures basically every day now, um, this summer so far. And like you pointed out, it's like, it's interspersed between the really intense heat and humidity with these like crazy storms and tornado warnings. So that does seem like a new phenomenon, right? That seems like kind of a new and and scary thing that's going on. Yeah. It's not good. It seems, um, it seems actually super bad. Yeah. I think so. (laughs) Really, really bad. Uh, yeah, the the rain, I mean, the rain is coming so fast and furious that it's not getting absorbed into the ground. And so it runs off and then it creates flooding and blah, blah, blah. Um, we, we have a port as many Port cities would have, obviously. And um, just before uh, Christmas this past year, like, I mean, our port floods all the time. And I showed up at a party and the family that greeted me, who are my friends, they're like, our car is in the St. Lawrence. (laughs) (laughs) They'd gone to some, yeah, they'd gone to some, like, I mean, this is very Quebecois as well, to some uh, uh, Christmas story time where someone just (laughs) gives you the old time uh, cons, like the account, the, the, you know, as if you're sitting around a fire and listening to stories. And just before the last story, they're like, um, everybody that's parked in the port, you might want to go see if your car is um, still there. <laughs> and my friend got there and, and got to rain up to his knees and rain and snow because it was like December 23rd and uh, and their car was gone. It was oh, it's 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 gone off to sea. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this is a scary thing about this moment is that it still seems like intense, but still somewhat tolerable. But I guess yeah. the thing that I always kind of go start thinking about especially and it's it's hard to escape this thought when you have kids as well it's like what's the summer going to be or the winter 5 years from now or 10 years I from know. now or 15 years from now that's when it kind of starts getting a little bit freaky when you yeah, see the, or- the heat the global the temperatures and the way that it, this year is just completely outpacing every other year or all these other things that's the really kind of alarming thing about that yeah, or the uh, the maps that say like North American temperatures have reached Middle Eastern temperatures, and it's like that sounds bad. But like, what's going on in the Middle East then? Because yeah. they're not. I'm sure they're not just maintaining normal temperature. Oh, no. they're oh, it's it's really hot. It's really really death level hot. Yeah, Great. yeah, exactly. And that's the that's the really scary thing about this moment. Like, not only how that's going to affect uh, us and our climate here, but uh, you know the way that like the, these massive heat bulbs are going to start hitting places like India. And it's going to inevitably lead to these like massive refugee caravans. We're already seeing now how migrants and refugees are treated now in both Canada and the United States and Western Europe. The massive amounts of migrants and refugees that have been fleeing, you know, war and violence often initiated by uh, the West and the United States with Canada as their partner. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the really disturbing thing, the, the scary future to think about what's going to happen when inevitably these tens of millions of people start uh, fleeing where Mm -hmm. they've, where they live because of, for climate reasons and how that's going to, how they're going to be treated. And we see the rise of the right and and these fascist anti-immigrant movements happening now 
And it's not really that difficult to extrapolate like where that's going to go. And it's, it's a really sort of terrifying nightmare future to think about. Totally. Totally. Unless, unless we, we've got armed revolution in like the mix and then all of a sudden there's like hmm, some possibilities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are some possibilities <laughs> with that. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I guess that's a good way to, to get started into what I was going to thinking about talking about here, which is, uh, you know, we're talking about Canada and I think, when Trump was elected in the US, I think there was one thing that started to make me really wonder about where we were going here because our politics are always kind of like trailing the US or, or tailing the US's by maybe five, six, seven years. Mm-hmm. And it still seems like with, with Trudeau, he's we're still in kind of our like Obama era. And right. I've been kind of just waiting for that other shoe to drop, like when this right wing populist mo- mo- movement is really going to kick off in Canada. And in terms of like the movement is there already, right? We've seen it already yeah. with the trucker convoy. We're seeing it all the time in the or the mass freak out over COVID lockdowns and that kind of thing. I mean, we've seen it in some of the violence we've seen, like the the mosque shooting that took place in Quebec City after Trump was elected, which was directly influenced by Trump and by these like right wing commentators. So yeah. it's like we have the movement there already and it seems like we're just waiting around for someone to really figure out how to harness that. Is that kind of how you're feeling right now too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, in Canada, if we're going to look at who the mainstream far right candidates are, the people that reasonably could be, I mean, I don't think Canada's Trump is a very good way of saying it because, you know, as much as Brian Mulroney was Canada's Reagan, he also wasn't right. Like it, it comes to Canada in a in a weird repackaged Canadian way. Yeah. And so the person that's closest to being in that spot is, of course, Pierre Polyever. And Polyever is a twat. I can say that, right? Yeah, please do. Like yeah. we're not on the air of like the CRTC or no. the FCC or whatever. Okay, yeah. So he's, he's a like a yeah. giant, giant twat. And this is a guy who's like been fantasizing of being the prime minister since he was the age of f- four or five, and went right from you know being a tiny Tory in university at, right into getting elected in a, in a in a safe riding that he had no connection with outside of Ottawa, and held that riding from a very young age, from his early twenties all the way up until now and he's in his early 40s and he's the leader of the conservative party he has extreme far-right views and um there's nothing stopping him from getting elected he will eventually get elected unless the conservatives shiv him which is possible because they keep shiving their leaders um but there's nothing stopping him from getting elected that is outside of the conservative party just because as much as we don't live in a two-party system we also do and um the liberals are going to lose an election at some point They're, they already only got a minority government in the last election and they trudeau's not probably going to run again that's my guess that's totally a that's totally a prediction that's not something that he said yeah um but you know, where does Polly ever fit in this kind of uh, in this world? And there are things stopping him from becoming prime minister because we don't live in a two party system. There is like some interesting horse trading that has to happen with all the other parties to see who's going to get uh, like the highest number of seats. Um, but right now, the only thing stopping us from uh, a Polly ever prime ministership uh, are two factors that, uh, well, one will change and one is 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 kind of a funny historical thing. So the first factor is is Ontario, which is you know the largest province that's led by a conservative right now. 
Ontarians traditionally over the last hundred years vote for the opposite party at the federal level than they do at the provincial level. And so as long as Doug Ford is in is in Toronto, is in Queen's Park, is elected the premier of Ontario, it is unlikely that Polly Ever is going to pick up the amount of support he needs from Ontario to become prime minister. So that's very interesting. But that's not going to last. I mean, Doug Ford's not going to be the premier of Ontario forever. And the second that he starts to kind of uh, you know, polling or or his popularity falters, all the rats from his group will run to Ottawa the way that they fled Ottawa and ran to Ontario uh, the last, ran to Toronto the last time that the Conservatives uh, start, uh, faltered really in 2015. So that's one one thing kind of saving us. The other thing saving us uh, is Quebec, uh, where Pierre Polyever has not shown that he's popular and you need to have the votes in Quebec to become Prime Minister. It's very, very hard to become Prime Minister in Canada without a sizable number of votes in Quebec. And he's too far right for the province, or maybe I should say he's not far right. He's, the he's right not the, the, in the right way, right? Because <laughs> yeah. Quebec is a very funny place, very influenced by France and the politics of France. Um, and Polly Ever's far rightness is focusing a lot on, you know, things things that, that Quebecers actually generally don't really accept. So if, you, if you're going to attack women's rights, even the, the, the staunchest conservatives in this province don't uh, don't support some of the attacks women's rights for a whole bunch of historical reasons, which is great. Yeah. Um, and so Quebec and Ontario are, are two real problems for Polly Ever. I think that they were hoping that, you know, a guy called Pierre would like manage to just be okay in, in, in Quebec. And it's like, that's not how it works. Um, and, and so that's great, but none of that is to, to even mention the, the broader movement that is enabling all the stuff and the broader movement, unfortunately is growing in strength. No one seems to know how to fight it. No one seems to know what we're asking for to, to actually solve some of these issues. And the real problem that we have, and it's the same problem that exists in the United States, is that the liberals need the far right just as much as the conservatives do. And so when you're two political established party, establishment parties both need the far right, they interact with it in completely different ways, but they both need it. Uh, that's super bad news for all of us who want to fight the far right, because no one with any political power in this in this country has any interest in fighting the far right. Yeah. No, you talked about Quebec and how weird and interesting and unique it is politically. I think that is something that's we've talked about it before, but like our our premier, Francois Legault, he's like this conservative right wing pro business guy, but also kind of a populist in some ways and doesn't mess with certain aspects of Quebec society, even if it might go against what you typically understand as being like a conservative viewpoint. We still do totally. have like a somewhat functional social democracy. It is being like privatized and it's dwindling away, but it's still there and he doesn't seem to be really interesting in challenging that too, too much. Or it's like you talk about women's rights, these things that are really important to people in Quebec, even people that are uh, right wing themselves. It's really is kind of an interesting and, and unique place. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. It's and, you know, and then it just goes back to the fact that people have memory here and uh, and it's a society that like where where the rest of North America after the after New France fell right? New France, of course, included many parts of the United States. But after the British conquered New France, uh, every every colony became a British colony. The the reason why Quebec was managed to like avoid like the English kind of approach to politics was because it was much easier to just give the priests and the bourgeoisie in the, the colony the power to just maintain things as they were. And that's what they did. And because of that, the Catholic Church was so, so strong. It, it, I mean, there's a million bad things about the Catholic Church, but one of the positives was that the church gave people a sense of so social solidarity, right? And so if you look at the history, even of poverty in Canada and how people, uh, how the colonies interacted with poverty, the Anglo colonies, so, you know, along the, in the Maritimes or St. John's, Newfoundland or Ontario, 
the poverty reduction was very, very, very individualized. It was very um, Puritan, like there's either deserving poor or undeserving poor. And that's that's influenced how to this day we understand poverty in Canada. You know, the like either get a job or it's your own fault, you're poor, that kind of thing. In Quebec, uh, from the beginning, everyone paid to pay for services for the poor. And there wasn't a concept of deserving or undeserving poor. And so that social solidarity um, is, is a very French thing. It's very connected to the, the power of the Catholic Church. And even though the church has you know, been completely rejected um, now, yeah. I mean, for how many decades now? Six decades. Um, that sense of social solidarity still exists in this province. And um, and and Anglo like waspiness really cannot pierce it. And so anybody doing politics, whether they're doing politics in, in Quebec or they're doing Canadian politics that includes Quebec, has to understand that that you can have that social solidarity at the same time that you can actually have a hard right um, political movement. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a weird synthesis. And yeah, it's interesting how you know there was eventually there was this huge backlash to the power of the catholic church here which led to quebec now being like an extremely secular place it takes this kind of idea of secularism really seriously to the point that i think it veers into kind of racism and islamophobia totally. sometimes as we've oh, yeah. seen with some of our bans on religious symbols or and stuff like that which kind of leave some uh christian symbols alone while kind of is explicitly going after uh the hijab and and Muslim uh, symbols, religious mm -hmm. symbols. Uh, so yeah, it's just it is a bizarre and interesting and and very unique place that I don't think if you if you don't live here, you don't really understand that dynamic. It can be completely confusing, and it's confusing even for me who lives lived here for a long time now. Um, and in fact, you talk about like the preserving the idea of French culture as Quebec does, which is I understand the importance of that as well. It can also be extremely annoying if you are an English person living in Quebec. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just one of the things you it's been another part of the weird synthesis of Quebec politics that you just have to deal with when you live here. Totally. Um, so, yeah, talking about this, this right wing movement. Yes. Yeah, so you talked about Pierre Polyev. And that's the, that's always been the funniest thing for me, because you see him really trying to speak to this kind of constituency, the convoy people, the mm -hmm. kind of like. QAnon, the yellow vest, real, real weirdos, because there's there is this real like hard right reactionary movement in Canada that I think has always been kind of there. But yeah. since probably 2018, 2019 has really started to bubble to the surface. And it's just it has been hilarious for me to see Pierre try and position himself as being the leader of that movement and <laughs> hilariously pitch himself as being some kind of like outsider to the political system or some kind of maverick. Like you're pointing out, he's like this lifelong conservative oh, yeah. Tory operative that he's, he's never had an actual job in his life. That's not in the conservative movement in the conservative party. And to yeah. see him kind of try to put on this, like every man affect to pretend that he's just some random, some outsider. It's just hilarious. Like I and like, I don't know if people are buying it. I know he does have a certain amount of popularity in that movement just for the fact that he's, going and talking to them and speaking to them and trying to speak to their concerns. But is yeah. anyone really taking that seriously? The idea that Pierre is some kind of like maverick figure, like it's just a joke that anyone would ever buy that, you know? Yeah. And I think like if you're listening and you have no idea who this guy is or what he looks like, I think we should like kind of describe this individual because <laughs> It, it, like you know, when when we when, when we're talking about American style politics, let's say, uh, or the Trump style right wing populism coming to Canada, um, and, and not just Trump. I mean, you can think of Boris Johnson, you can think of Sil Silvio Berlusconi, who's really, in some ways, the the architect of this kind yeah. of politic. 
there's no Canadian figure that's like any of these men. I mean, the closest that we had was like Kevin O'Leary, but the guy's a, like that guy's a complete joke. And he had no hope in hell of actually doing yeah. that kind of politics. He tried, but it didn't work. And his wife um, killed and, someone in a boat as well. And his, well, allegedly she allegedly. killed someone, but like, let's yeah. be, let's be serious. Like allegedly Kevin was in the boat too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they there crashed. was a little bit of drinking going on as well. Possibly. Yeah, they, I don't know. We're yeah. There was, we, no we understand that someone crashed into another yeah. boat um, after <laughs> uh, some 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 brewskis, but um, the uh, so we we've been saddled with um, this like wooden awkward political operative, right? And and that has none of the of the of the charm that someone like Donald Trump has, right? So Donald Trump. Uh, is an entertainer. It understands how to entertain people. Speaks in an entertaining way. Says, frankly, objectively hilarious stuff. Yeah. Right. Like he's stuff charismatic. that is not. He's charismatic. He says stuff that's not just funny to his base, but like I like that's yeah. really funny. Like, you know, get this guy a television show. Get him off of the stage for the political leadership or whatever. Right. <laughs> oh, he had a television show. Of course, this is why yeah. he's good at this. Um, and so we have nothing like that in Canada. Like no, nobody, nobody close. To, like the closest thing would be, um, I mean, is the way someone ex- described um, the, uh, the the leadership of Ukraine uh, when I first heard of Vladimir Zelensky. Someone saying it'd be like Rick Mercer. Uh, became prime minister of Canada and then Canada got invaded by the United States, but also Rick Mercer played piano with his dick. Right. And it's like, okay, now I understand (laughs) what's going on in Ukraine. Um, And of course, if you don't even know who Rick Mercer is, none of this is funny at all. So we've, we've nobody like that. And so we have this guy, Paul Ever, who looks literally, and I'm not, this is not like a, Oh, he looks like, he literally looks like Milhouse from the Simpsons. And, um, <laughs> and has always been called Milhouse, like for, for the 25 years that he's been a politician, people have called him Milhouse. That. Oh yeah. It's a joke. I mean, Oh really? Oh yeah. He looks like Milhouse and he's Milhouse. And then, and then the most hilarious thing the last two weeks was uh, he's like trying to like get rid of his glasses and yeah, so he's yeah. taking off his glasses the and then look, the, the new look. Showing and how it looks he's, even how more he's like ripped. Yeah, he's doing CrossFit and stuff. He's getting all ripped, it, ripped and shredded. He's becoming a ripped CrossFit dad, bro. <laughs> and and that, I mean, sure, that has a certain appeal, hundred percent. There's a lot of Canadian men, I think, that are going to be attracted to that. I don't think Canadian women are all that attracted to that, to be honest. Like, I, I think that I think most Canadian women don't care yeah. about that and, and are fine with doughy political figureheads. Like, I still think he looks are, like a huge dork, regardless of he these, looks like a giant yeah. dork. Yeah. And some people are suggesting he's got prosthetics on and it's not actually muscles because his pecs <laughs> don't actually fit in proportion to his arms. Anyway, th- there's a lot a of very scandal. funny things. It would be, that would be as good as the Mike Harris sixth toe scandal, <laughs> which is also very, only a few people remember that one. Um, but yeah, so, so he's trying really, really hard to be charismatic and to speak to average people, but he's going to have to, I mean, the way that conservatives operate in Canada is you have to moderate yourself to appeal to a mass audience you have to and you can moderate yourself and then be extreme in your politics be extreme in the the bills that you pass and all that kind of thing but you have to from just from a pr perspective have to moderate yourself to get elected because canadians appreciate moderation or whatever there's also rock bottom support for this party uh, at like a third of canadians and that you could literally run a murderer or a dog wearing a bow tie and they'll always get the same rock bottom support in this province in this country because Canadians are so um, loyal 
appeal to the political uh, orientation that they have or that they grew up with or whatever. So, I mean, you know, he's he's got a base of, of support. He doesn't have to do too, too much other than moderate himself, but he hasn't moderated himself. You know, I saw a, a speech that he did yesterday in, in, in Western Canada being like, we're gonna tell the World Economic Forum to go to hell, right? Yeah, like, yeah right. And it's like the World That's Economic Forum, like, yeah. Who, you, you folks were all over that shit like a decade ago, and you're gonna be in the G7, and you're gonna do all the same shit. And while the crowds coming out to that are cheering, no, like, no reasonable conservative actually cares about this shit. Like, yeah. they understand that Canada's a lapdog, and we do these lapdog things. That's that's who we are. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Like we haven't heard any policy recommendations. All we've heard is how he is not far right. He's not going to mess with women's rights. He's not going to blah, blah, blah. Um, And, and I think that they're dancing this line, just waiting for a time where the the support for the liberals inevitably collapses and they'll be able to waltz into uh, the prime minister's office. But I I don't think that's going to come actually, as soon as they think it's going to come. I don't think it's as soon as many pundits in Canada think it's going to come. I think people are thinking it's going to come right away. And I actually, I think that the liberals are going to do a a bait and switch with their uh, leadership and they'll get another mandate and it'll be surprising to everybody. That's my guess. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, I think the funny thing about Pierre as well is the way that like, yeah, he's trying to speak in the kind of language of economic populism and our media yeah. is just bending over backwards to give him credit for this. He's talking to these about these the kitchen table issues and everything. And he's talking yeah. about housing prices and he's talking about how people can't move out of their parents' house and he's and he's blaming Trudeau. And, and get the, girlfriends. The yeah, exactly. That's a whole other thing as well. Um. But like everyone knows as well, anyone that knows anything about like what he's going to actually offer, like Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party are not going to do anything about these like economic issues except no. austerity and tax cuts. And the same thing that conservatives have been offering for the last several decades, which have not delivered economic results for average people and have in fact contributed to all these very things that he's complaining about. Um, yes. Which is funny because I don't think our media, as much as it gets framed as being this like left wing, uh, like you talk about CBC or anything, our media, I don't think has done a good job at all of actually like asking him or anyone in the conservative movement to explain what specifically economic policies they're going to enact in order to like yeah. help these problems like the housing market. Pierre's a landlord. He doesn't want housing prices to go down. He wants them to continue to rise, as are many yeah. of the people also in our parliament as well. Um, yeah, but that's that's an absurd thing as well. He's he's trying to talk with the language of economic populism while offering just the exact same tired, warmed over conservative economic platform that conservatives around the West have been operating under for a really long time now. Abs- absolutely. I, I mean, and this is kind of the scary thing is if he were to figure out how to propose things that sounded like they would help average people. And he's trying, I mean, he's really trying with his like red tape reduction promises and all this kind of idiocy related to municipal zoning or whatever. It's like, okay, that's really in the weeds, Pierre, but fine. (laughs) Um, But if he were to figure out what those kinds of messages were, if he were going to say that he's going to take on the, the, the oligarchy in the, um, in the grocery world in Canada, we only have like three grocery companies. If he was going to take on the oligarchy of the telecommunications world, we only have three telecommunications companies. I mean, we only have three companies of every kind, except for mining. We have a ton of gold companies and they're, you know, causing lots of fucking havoc around the world. Um, I think that he would actually be able to get um, his message further. Um, And so I think that, you know, on one hand, this is a party that has been the most um, successful at leveraging social media and online movements to get people elected. They did this in uh, many different provinces to get provincial conservative leaders elected. But I think that it's come too late for Pierre Polyever. 
And so all of the tactics that they've perfected in the last eight years, which have been very, very powerful, I don't think are still working because of the changes on social media platforms, because we've seen it before, um, because we know what this is about. They have to find something else. And I think beyond the far right organizing within the freedom convoys and beyond the organizing within social media spaces, they don't really have any ideas because at the end of the day, they have the exact same perspective on the issues that matter uh, as the liberals do. You know, they might dance around some of the stuff a little bit, but, but by and large, it's the exact same. And so when it's the exact same... Like, how do you differentiate yourself? You can't. You 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 only have aesthetic ways to differentiate yourself. So you put on, you know, fake pecs and you take off your glasses and you're like, I'm, I'm a cool looking guy. And it's like, oh, God, I, I can't even look at you, man. Like, yeah. put that stuff worse. back on. Yeah, He looks weird, right? Like, that's the thing, too. It's like, this is, we have seen you since you were 22. Like, you you yeah. can't do a makeover like this. You're not, you're not, you're not nobody. We know what you look like. And so now it's like, oh, God. Oh. Yeah. Like, got it. You didn't go to prom. You don't have to dress like that for the rest of your life, though. Jeez, buddy. <laughs> what do you make of, um, you know, you talked about the way that we're really following uh, often American foreign policy. We're basically getting our foreign policy dictated to us by the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a couple of factors like that that I think are are becoming really prominent in our culture right now. Like one thing, we have this American pivot to Asia and a pivot to China specifically uh, as they're kind of like ramping up hostility and tension with China and kind of instigating this sort of new Cold War type situation, uh, which is, you know, kind of a scary and dangerous moment for everyone. And you see that really taking off in Canada right now as well. We have this really kind of deranged, paranoid climate in our that our media is promoting. Basically, like through our intelligence agency, through CSIS, working with the media to promote this idea of like China interfering in Canada's democracy and the idea that China is like controlling these like random liberal backbencher MPs or something, which is completely ludicrous in and of itself. But yeah. yeah. Like, what do you make of that the whole climate right now? Isn't that, it's kind of a scary situation. Like I, I really feel for people in our Chinese diaspora right now who are basically being pressured to follow a certain line when it comes to China and anyone that kind of steps out of that or expresses any kind of pride in China or talks about like their accomplishments, which are really incredible accomplishments in development over the last couple of decades, or pushes back on any of these narratives about China's human rights abuses or anything like that, they get now framed. It's basically an illegitimate opinion. If you're a Chinese Canadian, they get framed Mm -hmm. as being like uh, in service of, or being controlled by the CPC or if these if these groups are talking to politicians, then these politicians are are being controlled by these pro Beijing groups and stuff like that. It's a really dangerous moment, yeah. I think, and it's kind of scary the way it's been developing over the last couple of years. Yeah, you know, I think that Canadian politicians have always tried to look for who are the foreign threats that they can play up. And Russia never really stuck in the same way that it worked in the United States. You know, there was no election stolen by Russia or Russian interference or any of this kind of bullshit that was coming, um, you know, that that plagues the discussions of American voting and politics. Yeah. And Christia so I think Freeland that I tried to lean on that stuff a little bit, talking about her Christia, past and everything. She's tried. I mean, she's found another way, which was just to make sure that the, the war was yeah. so cheerleaded that Canada is like, you know, all in. Yeah. yeah. We'll, um, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, but but China, I think, uh, works a little bit more because. 
um, you know, because there is a lot of Chinese presence in Canada, Chinese commerce, uh, commercial presence in China, in Canada. And, um, and, you know, it's been high, high stories, big, big fabled stories of relationships that former prime ministers have had with Chinese officials. And um, it, it's, it's, I think an easier, uh, it's an easier thing to make into a, a, a frenzy, to be honest. And um, and people are working on it really, really hard. And so we've got this like scandal of foreign interference within elections. None of the evidence has been very strong to say that this is actually happening. None of the I mean, we're supposed to believe that the Chinese government cares so much about the nomination of a political party candidate, like not yeah. even not even the actual candidate. Um, and then, of course, now that Olivia Chow has won in uh, Toronto as mayor, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, racism around uh, whether or not the Chinese government or the or the Communist Party, like, got her elected, which is, like, completely laughable Ludic- if you know ludicrous, anything yeah. about her. I mean, you just literally just because she's Chinese. Like, that's the only reason. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's very, very toxic, very poisonous. Um, Canada has a long history of Sinophobia, obviously, uh, going all the way back to the first um, presence of Chinese people in this country. So we're talking, you know, more than 150 years. And um, and so it's very easy, I think, to whip up Sinophobia in this country. Um, it's it's a zero sum game. And, and this is what I don't really understand why there's so much focus on it, because it isn't as if, uh, you know, if if the Communist Party of China chose, uh, decided that the Liberal Party is the party that they want elected. And they are going to intervene in every one of our election, local elections to make sure that the Liberal Party of Canada wins. That would make more sense in the logic of why we're afraid of foreign intervention. Um, But that's not what's happening. There's no party that is better or worse for China. They are the same. They are literally the exact same. And so, like, why would China inter? Like, there's better ways to do diplomacy, to do foreign in- influence or interference, than to get your hands dirty like that. You know, it's like, do, do people think that di- diplomacy works like this? Like, it's we don't see what the way that it works, but it's not. Yeah. Oh, let's bust in a bunch of international students and do do fraud. Like, I fucking bet. What happened to the journalist who broke that news? Oh, he's not working anymore at Global News. Hmm, what happened there? We don't know. But what happened to the other journalist that's been breaking all this news? He's the one that's that's been demon that was demonizing Mayor Arar, who had been uh, deported to Syria uh, and and wrote like most of the lies related to Mayor Arar uh, in the early 2000s. So like, I don't trust any of the journalists that are coming up with these stories. And frankly, if we care about foreign interference in Canada, the the much bigger threat is the United States. That's obvious. That's there's no question about that. Um, but it's not just the United States. It's it's also for profit corporations whose fingers are all over political decisions, specifically through companies like Accenture, uh, McKinsey, like, you know, the millions and millions and millions of dollars that the liberals are spending on these uh, for profit international corporations to literally make decisions like how many immigrants should Canada accept? This is something that we've asked McKinsey to just yeah. decide for us. Like, that's the problem. Um, it is not the Chinese Communist Party is trying to blah, blah, blah. It's like, give me, that is bullshit. And, and uh, I have to say that like China has better snack food than North America does. That's true. And any country that has nailed snack food to the extent that China has, it's like, I got no problem with that country, man. <laughs> I agree. We shouldn't be trying to, we shouldn't be trying to uh, compete or or with that. You know, we should be learning from that. We should learn from their we development should be learning infrastructure from... and also the snack food as well. No, I, so... I want I want those flavored pumpkin seeds like all the time. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, you, talking about Pierre Polyev when he talks about this kind of issue and he's trying to ta- act like he's going to get all tough. He's going to get tough with China. And it's just yeah. it's honestly so funny to me. The idea that like President Xi is just staying up at night. Oh, we got to We're worried about this guy, this Pierre Polyev guy with no way we can't handle no. this. He's going to get tough with us. Oh, no. Like they don't care. They do, they do not care if Pierre or whoever else is the PM of Canada. I don't no. think it's going to change their calculation in any way. And the idea no, that they like- would is just laughable. It's like they, if they've got a big map of the world in their main meeting, the way that everyone on Game of Thrones does. Yeah. Canada's not on that map. Like no. nobody cares about Canada. <laughs> Maybe it's like, ooh, that's the water country. That's that's the you know, yeah. that's where we're going to have to get some fresh water when, you know, California like drops into the sea. But we're not we're not yeah. there. We don't matter. And um, and it's all to distract from the fact that we literally have no internal decision making anymore. Like our sovereignty is so fragile in this country um and no one is going to have an adult conversation about this it all goes down to um tropes and racism and uh and yeah. things that sound like they might be true but like if a foreign entity doesn't favor one party over another what the hell is foreign interference then yeah. like what what difference does it make Polly ever is going to be the exact same as trudeau when it comes to china um, but, you know, we don't have any Michaels anymore. We've gotten rid of all of our Michaels. Exactly. Uh, to to be able to. China brought over a big like vacuum tube and just sucked them all up. They're all gone now. It's very unfortunate. Um, I believe it. No, you talk about foreign interference. And yeah, you mentioned America, obviously, as being the primary culprit of foreign interference in Canada. But it's also, yeah, like you said, it's just it's pure racism, the way we focus on and fixate on China. Whereas if there's a pro-Israel group that's meeting with our politicians, that's not going to make a headline. That's not going to be something that's going to be concerned of any um, a concern for anyone. Actually, if there's a pro-Palestinian group, then it is going to be a concern. You see how our concerns about who is talking to our politicians and about what really depends entirely on like what our geopolitical goals are and who our allies are yeah. and is based entirely in this kind of you know racism and, and xenophobia. Um, and you talked about Ukraine as well and Canada's role in that, uh, its outsized role in that, which I think is one thing that I think gave me maybe a little more grounding to sort of understand this conflict when it kicked off. Cause I had been paying attention to it a little bit over the last couple of years, because it's, mm-hmm. that's been a big part of uh, Canada's sort of geopolitical strategy over the last couple of years. And Christia Freeland, of course, uh, kind of has, she's been a central role in that um, as well. That's pretty much her entire life's work is to kind of promote yeah. this Ukrainian nationalist project and to kind of like, erase the soviet legacy in ukraine and you see that's a big that's a big part of what has been happening politically in ukraine over the last couple of years and the the war Mm. has really just intensified that um i know you just had a podcast episode about this on uh, sandy and nora talk politics about you know whether we're allowed to criticize this in canada and really like if you look at our media climate we're really not it's been really one-sided there's been no real effort to to talk about canada's role in in promoting or escalating this conflict before Russia invaded, which we've played an outsized role in that over the last decade, especially there's really no space in our media climate to ever really discuss anything other than Russia, bad, more weapons to Ukraine. Uh, We must support be part of NATO and be proud of that. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really as much as we love to wag this or wave around this idea of press freedom and freedom of speech or all these things like that. We always used to lecture other countries. There's really been just zero dissent from this in our mainstream media, Mm -hmm. zero effort to understand or have any kind of critical analysis of Canada's role in this. 
Um, that's another thing that's been kind of disturbing about the last uh, two years, especially, right? Totally. I mean, don't forget that Stefan Bandera's grandson, whose name was Stefan Bandera, was literally writing about this for CTV, one of our national yeah. broadcasters, right? Like, although I haven't it's seen his name lately. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, someone maybe there thought, Ooh, this doesn't look so good. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So Canada, Canada before Russia invaded Ukraine was very, very, very involved in militarizing and building up the capacity of the Ukrainian army. And this is probably what most Canadians knew. If they knew anything about Canada's role with, uh, with Ukraine, it was related to the uh, military. Um, Canada has the largest Ukrainian population in the world outside of Ukraine. So that means that this issue is not just like a good or versus a bad issue, but is like actually critical to getting votes in Western Canada or Southern Ontario or whatever. Um, and, and I think that we have to see it through that lens that because there's so many Ukrainians in Canada, it, it is not just we've picked a random country and we have these opinions, but the Ukrainian diaspora um, who is diverse in its views, but like certain views have definitely dominated other views. Um, they're they're a really important political block in Canada, and they are able to make or break local elections, which is really really an important part of this. So, one of the things that I I, I you know always laugh about when I think about it is back when before the invasion, Canada was sending money and support and, and training the military in Ukraine. We also had this like project to like in, in, uh, enhance feminism in Ukraine, which no one remembers. Like we were spending <laughs> money to fix the place of women in the country. And I, I would, I'm like, did anyone do an audit of that program? Like how successful were we? Like, we, did we, do we build feminism in Ukraine? Cause that seems like that was probably all bullshit, but anyway. Yeah. And so here we are now, uh, past day 500 of the invasion, uh, things are not going well. Like we're definitely on the track to protracted war, which is bad for people that live through it, obviously. And the only conversations in Canada that we're hearing are, um, should we be increasing our money to NATO, which has been, it's an issue every single time NATO is writ, uh, comes up for more than the last decade. Canada needs to put more money into the military. Um, lots of questions about what are we purchasing helicopters? Are we purchasing planes? Are we purchasing F-35s? Are we purchasing, uh, are we sending howitzers? Are we sending guns? Like whatever. But there's no ability for us to say, what in the hell are we doing? Like, sure. Yeah. Like it's, I'm sure we can win some votes in Saskatchewan by sending weapons to Ukraine for sure. What happens to those weapons when we're there, when they're there? What is the actual end of this uh, of this invasion, you know, like, are we really expecting to storm the Kremlin and seize Putin and then send him to the Hague? Is that literally what we think is going to happen? Because I know that's what a lot of Canadians think is going to happen. I don't think there's a serious adult in the world who thinks that's what's actually going to happen. Yeah. And um, I was very interested to see that Melanie Jolie was pressed at the NATO meeting. She's the Minister of Foreign Affairs. And um, a Canadian journalist asked her, when will Canada consider the war over? Is it uh, and what they're trying to get her to say was, will will Canada accept a, a, an end of the war, even if Russia still has some territory that Ukraine claims? So does it mean all of the all of the borders are established pre 2014? Does it mean all of the borders from 2020 are, are established, or does it mean every single Russian soldier has left every single part of Ukraine that Ukraine is is, is claiming is theirs? And her response, of course, had nothing to do with what he'd asked, but she said. 
this is going to end in diplomacy as all wars do, as all wars do. This is yeah. going to end in diplomacy. And so it's like, that's a line that if you say that online, someone, you get 50 people telling you that you're a paid Russian troll. Yeah. And here we've got the minister of foreign affairs finally saying what all of the adults in the room know, which is that this has to end through diplomacy. The problem is that we, Canada, cannot play a role in that diplomacy because we've completely jumped in on board on the side of Ukraine and have absolutely no credibility with the Russians. Yeah, that was the amazing thing about that quote that I noticed where she was like, you know, I've always said that it's going to end in this kind of negotiated settlement. It's like, you know, you have not said that. No one is literally no one has said that. No one no. in the government has said it. No one in our media has said it. This is the first time hearing of it. This idea that, oh, yeah, by the way, eventually we're going to have some kind of negotiated settlement. It was it almost seemed like a mistake. Yeah, I'm, wait, I'm waiting yeah. for her to apologize for it. <laughs> That's right. I take that back. We're not negotiating anything. We're yeah. going to seize Putin right from the Kremlin and send him to the Hague. Yeah. Trudeau is going to parachute into the Kremlin. Yeah, that would be a great, great situation. Um, yeah, no, it's like that's that's like I said, it's a, that was one thing that I started paying attention to a few years ago. And I gave me a little bit of more context when this invasion did start about Canada's role in this. You know, that's you talked about the large uh, Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. And that's exactly why in Canada, there are these monuments to these SS divisions, Galician divisions, yeah. um, which yeah. has was been a source of some controversy for people in this country that are like, why do we have these monuments to SS divisions in this country? Um, and you realize this idea of kind of promoting this, promoting this, this sort of Ukrainian nationalist anti-Soviet freedom fighter that's been this like longstanding project and Canada and Christia Freeland and Christia Freeland's grandfather, who was a Nazi um, has been spending their entire lives kind of promoting this idea. And you see how in this invasion, that's really kickstarted that it's really like in increased it a lot. This, this whole, mm -hmm. uh, this whole notion you see these, like, it's actually very disturbing. You see the way that these like uh, monuments to Ukrainian heroes who were in the Red Army that defeated fascism in World War II are being like defaced, and street names are being re replaced uh, for these for these like you know people that should be upheld and respected, and these these incredibly uh, brave figures that did this and are being replaced with these people that you know helped carry out the Holocaust. It's really really disturbing, and that's one thing that yeah I think gets a little bit lost when we talk about this issue of like neo-Nazis in Ukraine. People think we're just talking about these right sector guys or Azov battalion or these militias in the military establishment, but that's not quite what it is, right? It's like a, it's part of a larger political project to promote this specific idea of like Ukrainian national identity, um, mm -hmm. which includes rehabbing these, these uh, World War II era figures like Stepan Bandera and others who helped carry out the Holocaust. And that's happening like at all levels. That's not just a couple of yahoos in the military establishment. Yeah, no. And I, it also like lays bare contradictions that exist within Canadian society that we've never really um, reckoned with. So, you know, the, 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 the narrative around the Holocaust is it, the Holocaust was bad and we opposed it and that's it. Right. Yeah. And a there's more not complicated than that. Well, yeah, it is more complicated in that in terms of like Canada refusing to accept, you know, refugees. Yeah. I mean, people know about that, but it isn't exactly um, it isn't exactly made. There's not sense made of how can we have been like this nation that opposed the Holocaust and liberated Holland and liberated parts of Europe while also being so anti-Semitic that we would not have accepted Jewish immigrants or Jewish refugees, sorry, coming like fleeing the Holocaust. Right. And there was this big period of time after the, the Holocaust where, uh, yes, lots of refugees from the Holocaust immigrated to Canada, but so too did a lot of Nazis. 
right? Yes. And and Nazis were um, welcomed in some cases. They were certainly welcomed in places where Eastern European organizing was uh, too left wing. And so they needed Eastern European Nazis to fight against unionization um, or, or or strike votes or whatever within um, within mining communities in a lot of uh, towns across across the country. And so, you know, we we have a narrative that like, you know, where this nation is an anti-fascist nation. We, we we fought fascism and we won. And and thanks to Canada and the work of the allies, we we defeated fascism and all in the memory of uh, of the horror of the Holocaust. But we've always tolerated fascism. We've always tolerated fascism. We've always tolerated fascists in this country. Um, we've welcomed fascists in this country. And that is a contradiction that we don't actually talk enough about. There's no space to have a conversation like this. Um, so good luck to try to have it about Ukraine, because, of course, it's not just Ukrainian Nazis. I mean, we are, we are letting in tons of different kinds of Nazis. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, obviously, like we're like, that's that's how the West is built. What do people expect? Right. Yeah, um, well, and then you and, can talk and, about Canada's role as well, as long with America in inspiring the Nazis themselves, They're taking our, well, our genocide of indigenous peoples and the absolute the mass murder campaign that we use to settle this this nation, or you talk about totally. America's role with the, the the slave trade and the Jim Crow laws, like the Nazis were directly inspired by by that. Uh, so not only exactly. did, we, did we welcome in the fascists afterwards, but it was literally the legacy of the violent genocidal colonialism that built this country that led to the Nazis in the first place. Totally, totally. So now we're in this situation where um, we're seeing online and it's I would say it's probably everywhere in the English speaking social media world. I don't know what it's like in other uh, languages. I haven't really seen so much of it in French, to be honest, um, but where the Holocaust is um, very much being redefined, you know, where uh, I'm I'm seeing conversations online about how the Nazis and the communists were the exact same thing, uh, that, that they had the same aims. Right. And I'm, I'm sitting there like knowing that my, my partner's family was like, literally only, they literally only didn't die in the Holocaust. I mean, the ones that didn't die because they left the, the red army, like, yes, they were interned by Russia, but they were not murdered. They would have been murdered had they stayed in, in the, in the community in Poland that they were, that they lived in. Um, and it's just like, sorry, the, the, the repackaging of what has happened in world war two to not only fit the narrative or make, make the narrative fit of what's happening in Russia right now, right. Putin is Hitler 2.0. We need to stop the genocide and all these kinds of things. Um, it's completely warping what people understand the Nazis even did, you know, it's completely warping the, uh, the idea that they would march into communities. They would literally murder every single person in the city, or they would, or they would force them onto a train where they would murder them later. And then they'd move on and they'd do it again, you know, and then they would resettle these communities that that has that lost in the conversation of this war that is happening right now while invasion and turns now into a war between Russia and Ukraine. And, and it's I think it's really um, fascinating to see how the past is always present, obviously. But it's always present in a way that works for whatever narrative. And the, and the Russians do the exact same thing. The Russians t- like talking about the denazification of, of the Ukraine when they have also Russian nationalists and Nazi adjacent, you know, ideology yeah. and things happening there. Right. But there's, you know, because what is actually happening is a fight to save liberal Western hegemony. We can't actually talk about that. And if that's what the real fight is to save liberal hegemony, of course, communism and fascism are going to be married in this in this narrative and they will be the exact same thing. And then, of course, everything gets completely confusing. And then, of course, the Holocaust gets completely distorted into what of what happened and who the real victims were and who were the real perpetrators. And 
that is the most dangerous thing that we're dealing with right now. And of course, as the American empire um, is on its like last gasp, it's going to start you know kicking and screaming as it's like being drowned. And that's going to, you know, create a lot of danger and weird situations. Um, but that's where we are right now, which is, which is really fascinating. And our, our leadership knows that, and they know that this is a fight for, for Western um, liberalism uh, above all else, uh, rather yeah. than, you know, descending into a new, a new world order of many um, of, of the, you know, the multipolar, multipolar order uh, yeah. of, uh, of a rising uh, China, Russia, India, South Africa, Brazil, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it's been one of the really disturbing things about the last two years, seeing this kind of process of historical revisionism taking place, like the idea mm-hmm. of double genocide theory, which used to be a widely accepted form of like Holocaust denial or Holocaust revisionism, at least seems to have become kind of like the widely accepted like idea of history, especially when it comes to Ukraine and its its role in the Soviet yeah. Union. Um, that seems to be just like what people now understand about the role that the Soviet Union played there. Um, when, you know, just even pretty recently that would be, that would be condemned as being a form of Holocaust denial, but it's, it's very quickly become sort of the mainstream, uh, version of, of events that we all just have to accept. And I think it's really disturbing seeing that process play out. Well, and and think about like the victims to the memorial of the the memorial to the victims of communism, like this, this complete idiocy that the conservatives were all for. And then Christian Freeland was all for it as well with the liberal party. And that was a huge part of this, where you actually look at, um, you know, the victims of communism and the names of people uh, being memorialized by the victims of communism. Like, they're literal Nazis in this <laughs> memorial. This is a national memorial that's being built in Ottawa. Yeah. And there's names there that are like, wait, 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 like that. These are literal Nazis. Like, what the hell are we doing? But this <laughs> yeah. revisionism, you know, has started. It started under her, not started, but it was it was. Uh, like this has been going on for a long time. You know, these are conversations we've been having since 2010, you know? And so now there's actually a war to help crystallize all these things um, into being something that they are not. And it's very, very hard, very hard to, to, to pierce through. Yes. And fortunately though, we do have a, a thriving left-wing movement in Canada that is pushing back on these things <laughs> led by our mainstream sort of left-wing social democratic party, the NDP and Jagmeet Singh, who have been really strongly condemning. No, I'm just, I'm being facetious. They've not, they've been completely on board with this entire thing. I don't think, I can't recall one real criticism that I've heard from Jagmeet Singh or from really any anyone in the NDP that has criticized this, our Canada's role in, in this or nope. Canada's role in, uh, you know, escalating things to the point that Russia did invade or this nonstop flow of arms. It seems like they've been completely on board with that. Um, over the last two years, which is just also, a, I find a pretty big disappointment. Well, you know, back in uh, back back around the time of the invasion happening, uh, Sandy and I did an episode on our podcast about the anti-war position and how you can't go wrong being anti-war. And Nikki Ashton, who's a member of the of the New Democratic Party and is probably the only one that has any politics, <laughs> well, yeah. not only one, but only one of a few, uh, she retweeted the the episode. And it was so egregious that a politician did that, that there was articles about her retweeting yeah. my announcement of the show episode. Right. And it's like, uh, OK, you know, I, the, the party has not much courage. So I'm sure that that was enough to just be like, OK, well, I don't need that. I don't need that hassle. Um, but no, the, the NDP is a joke. They rely on votes as much as anyone else. And they understand that they have to support um, everything that the liberals are doing to get that support. And uh, beyond that, they have a they have a formal pact to hold the to prop the liberals up. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? It's just, it's just been like kind of disappointing over the last couple of years. Like I, I became a member of the NDP to vote for Nikki Ashton uh, when she was running for NDP leadership in, I think, 2018, because mm. she seems to be the only person in the party. Really, there's 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 people, there's MPs and activists within the party that I think have great values and are good people. But she seemed yeah. to be the only one that kind of was having that kind of bold, progressive vision, was trying to take that to a national level. Um, and she, of course, lost to Jagmeet Singh in that election. And I think it's been kind of frustrating. And like, I don't even have anything against Jagmeet Singh. He seems like a really nice guy. He, I know he does have a lot of progressive values and, um, you know, but hasn't really in five years really moved the needle at all for the party. They haven't really gained seats. They've not really, there's a whole, so many opportunities to like progress and to put themselves out there and to take a leadership position when it comes to the climate and when it comes to wealth inequality or foreign policy or whatever. And just yeah. doesn't seem like they have really done that or maybe they've tried, but it hasn't really connected with anybody. And now it's yeah. been five years. He's still the leader of the party. Like, I don't know how much longer that's going to be. Like if they have another election, that's sort of oh, a disappointing forever. result for them. Like, I don't know what no, that's going to lead to. Yeah. It's, it's the, just been never really strange. Yeah. You don't think so? It, it, no, the NDP is, is pathetic. And and I mean, you know, Singh had been the deputy leader of the Ontario party for six years. Well, he'd been elected for six years, maybe deputy leader for four or something before he ran federally. And uh, and they were a joke in Ontario. I mean, not, nothing that has happened has been surprising for anybody paying attention to the NDP. Um, I actually don't think he's got very good politics at all. I don't think that he I don't think that he uh, cares yeah, nice, much. about. But... <laughs> yeah, I think he's a nice guy, probably, um, yeah. you know, like I, he like he, the last time I saw him, he was like, "Oh, you're Nora from Twitter," and I'm like, "Motherfucker, I'm Nora from much more than Twitter." <laughs> like, if you're talking about left wing Canada, like, fuck yeah. you. Um, yeah, they're disappointing to the max, but nothing surprising. Like, this is not a party that's capable of doing anything, frankly, and um, and they certainly aren't capable of doing anything when it's confusing or when it takes courage or when it takes politics. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an old adage that says, you know, NDP, they are never doing politics and they are never, ever doing politics. The problem, of course, is that people have a lot of hope in them. They have a lot of political capital in their brand and that's it. But, the, 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 yeah. but nothing, 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 nothing. Like all they'll say is that, the, well, you know, we, we got Canadians a grocery rebate. And it's like, yeah, you got Canada to liquidate its state to give every Canadian 200 bucks so that the grocery industry can make more money. Good yeah. work. We're maybe you know, going to we... get means tested dental care at some point this decade, maybe, possibly. Yeah. We don't know. Maybe, but... which we yeah. won't, right? Because, and, and don't even ask about Pharmacare because Pharmacare is part of the program as well. And then it's like, oh, actually, you know what? Pharma is going to be too hard. Never mind. Yeah. Get the hell out of here. Like it's. <laughs> It's a joke. And and I uh, I feel really bad for people that still believe in the dream of the NDP, because frankly, there's no reason for anybody to believe it. And the more that you read about the history of the party and the evolution of the party, the more you realize that this party was actually probably set up by the FBI, actually, <laughs> or or, yeah. or the CIA, like like a foreign entity that was like, we need a, a chaotic useless thing to occupy <laughs> space on the left let's create something in canada because yeah. i actually don't think CSIS is, t is talented enough to do that in canada i think it would have to be like yeah an american security force yeah and it's weird because i know people that that work in left-wing politics or are trying to organize in left-wing politics and i know there are people that are trying to like 
initiate some kind of hostile takeover of the NDP to make it good, but it just yeah. seems like this never-ending project. Oh, don't worry, in the next election cycle, then we're going to finally take over the party and we're finally going to get it to good, do good things. It just seems yeah. this, like this never-ending carrot on a stick that people are following yeah, yeah. just into this abyss and wasting yeah. all this energy and organizing effort on just this hopeless hopeless plan of eventually making this party stand for good things. We're we're gonna we're gonna accidentally find magic beans, guys. Magic <laughs> beans are coming. Yeah. One day we'll have magic beans. It's like, yeah, maybe one day you'll finally get those magic beans. <laughs> Do you think there's any parallels to that? Like with the whole like the progressive movement in America and the Democratic Party and the idea of progressives operating in the Democratic Party, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yeah. or whoever trying to like eventually uh pull the democrats over to the left like do you even think that's no, possible not. like do you think it's possible to even even democratically like over this multi-year long process of building power which is i guess what the plan is if you're operating in that system what do you think about yeah, that yeah <laughs> I think that the, the interesting thing about the two party system in the United States is that um, it has it actually means that there's more diversity within both of the two parties. When people are forced to work in a broader kind of umbrella of a party, there is more ability for that discussion and debate to happen in, internally. Right. There's no corollary to the diversity of the Liberal Party in Canada to the diversity of the Democratic Party in the United States. And I think that's very, very important to mention that. Um, is the role of the left wing flank of the Democratic Party to pull it leftwards? Yes. Uh, is it to take over the Democratic Party? Not sure that that's like even possible. Not sure that any left wing Democrat really believes that they can, because, of course, the party of capital, like for Christ's sakes, like it's impossible. Right. Which is why then people say we need to have stronger third parties uh, or independents running to, to, to influence politics that way. Um, in Canada, it's like it's totally counterintuitive. We have more parties. There is more political diversity in terms of where you can place your time or your energy or who you can run for. But it's still it's the same electoral system. It's still first past the post. And so when you've got an electoral system that gives fake majorities to us, in our case, fake majorities to people in the, in the case of the United States, where you're kind of forced to choose between these two, unless you're a real renegade, and you want to be independent. Um, that 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 has a there's a very different impact on how much political diversity exists within the parties. Um, but I think that you know in our in our systems in both of our systems, the only way that you can get progressive things done, if we look historically, is to have really strong confrontations to the status quo of each party coming from the outside. And, and, and you can only do it from the outside, because if you're doing it from the inside, you will always bump up against the logic of the party. You always bump up against the limits of what the party is capable of doing. And there is no bigger threat than the, than the threat that comes from outside than from inside, because you can always pull like internal fuckery to, to stop things. Always, always, always. You can always lose ballots. You can always accidentally name somebody, not that person. You can always like there's ways to stop people when you're operating inside of a party on the same rules that is controlled by an establishment that you have no control over. But when you're when you're responding to pressure from the outside, then the rules change. And that's and that's where it's very, very exciting and really interesting and where you have to change political culture to push parties to the right, to the left. And, and that means not just the Democrats, but it also means the Republicans, too, like finding ways to to talk about these issues that the Republicans might be actually um, tied, uh, uh, pulled by. Um, and so what does it, 
external strong left-wing organizing look like it starts within workplaces it starts within unions it starts within social movements and then the conversation is well how do these things look different between canada and the united states and there are um, i think there's actually more differences than there are similarities to how our movements are built to certainly how our unions are built and the way that we build power in our in our respective countries it also i mean has to be said that Canada is much smaller than the United States. And so there is um, a small town, small minded, everybody's related kind of feeling uh, to our politics that uh, in the United States might be more like you buy yourself into the class, whereas in Canada, you literally have to be the son of somebody. Yeah. And like we are seeing right now, some really historic strikes going on uh, with the the WGA and the... Um... Seg after yes, yes, the screen, screen Actors Guild in America. We're seeing a possible UPS strike on the horizon, and so that's really exciting as well. It's like you can talk about yeah. America all day and how completely impossible it is to change things in the political system or through voting, but like you're saying, like that's how change is going to happen is through kind of militant organizing, organizing and strikes yeah. and that kind of thing. And that's I think something that anyone should feel hope for and inspired by. And that's something that if you're in a left wing movement in Canada, you should be paying close attention to as well. Um, and anyway, you don't even need a left-wing movement really in America. So you already got Joe Biden in there. He's fantastic. He's doing a great job, uh, just absolutely crushing it. So really they're in good hands. So I wouldn't, totally. I wouldn't worry too much <laughs> for the Americans. Um, Nora, thanks so much. Thanks for joining the podcast. Uh, really great discussion as always. I appreciate uh, that you came on. You want to let everyone know where they can find your work and where they can find you online? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can check out all of my work at noraloretto.ca. That's just with one T. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at no lore and O L O R E. My podcast is uh, I have a daily news podcast that is run through the Real News Network, so you can check that out there, or you can go to sandyandnora.com. Thanks so much, Nora. Talk Thank to you. Thank you. Soon. you.